Father, I ask and pray that um, you would speak through me this morning and that, as always, it's my prayer that uh, any nonsense that I utter would be would fall on deaf ears and uh, that the truth that you want to be known would be heard to the depths of our souls. Lord, I just pray that this, this morning as your Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds, that this would not be about information, but that you would fill us with the power of your Spirit and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The glory of God. I preached a sermon by that title. It was very different than this. First sermon out of seminary. And today, almost 20 years later, I'm going to preach that sermon again, although it's going to look very different than it did 20 years ago. It's important to me because the glory of God in this concept is the foundation that underlines and informs all that I am and how I approach God and how I worship Him. Whether I'm consciously thinking about it or not, nonetheless, it is the background noise. The, it's, it's the foundation on which I stand without even thinking about it. It's so much a part of me. It informs how I approach God and lead you in worship every Sunday. But I would argue that it's not just something that the pastor of worship and art should be concerned about. It's, it's something that every worshiping believer should be aware of. It is so foundational and is so important. The glory of God is, is a phrase that we, we often mutter and, and pronounce and say, and we've sung it this morning. We've referred to the glory of God over and over again in our songs. To God be the glory, we sang this morning. And in several other songs, the, we, we talked about the glory of God already. And... If you're like me on a typical Sunday, until I pointed that out to you, you might, you, might have, you might be thinking, reacting to that statement like, yeah, I guess we did, didn't we? And that's normal and that's okay. But it, the point is, is that it's something that we talk about a lot. But what really, what is it? And why is it so important? If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to, to take them out and and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm, the book of Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, hopefully you can find one in the rack in front of you in one of the, one of the chairs in front. But Psalm 19, verse 1. A very familiar verse to many. The Bible has a lot to say about God's glory. And at the very beginning of it all, scriptures proclaim that all of creation displays and declares God's glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. The Apostle Paul would restate that in another way. To the extent in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, this way. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and 
divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The Scriptures teach us throughout its pages that God's glory is manifest throughout all of creation. It's, it's so much a part of our normal. It's, it's, like, it's the, like the soup we live in. It's so much a part of our normal that unfortunately, sadly, in our self-centered sinfulness, we don't even notice it much of the time. And yet the fact of the matter is that if God stopped thinking about us for even a nanosecond, we would cease to exist. Simply, simple as that. All of creation displays and declares God's glory. And it is times like this that as we gather together and as I prayed earlier, that we take time to remove ourselves from the the concerns and the cares and the distractions of this world that we can take pause to focus on what's really, really important. To help us do that, if if I can uh, put in a plug for the worship seminar that's that's coming up on March 28th. Uh, it's a Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. Um, Tom Croyder is an internationally known speaker uh, on on worship. Uh, he is cited and referred to in uh, many books um, throughout the country. And uh, he's in high demand. I had the privilege of hearing him two years ago and, and uh, for the second time. And when I heard him, I, I, I was with a team of our people from, from the church here. And when I heard him, I said, when we were done, our, our church has got to hear what this man has to say about God. Because if we can see God in a new and fresh way, in a powerful way, it's going to change how our whole congregation approaches our worship and the way we live for God's glory. And so Tom has graciously granted us an exclusive um, seminar. He wasn't supposed to be back in this area contractually for two years, but he made an exception as long as it would just be our church and three others. And so um, we couldn't advertise it all over the metro, you know, and have thousands here. Couldn't fit them here anyways. Uh, But we can fill this place up with as many as 400 people. And uh, it's my hope and prayer that every single one of you will put on your calendar Saturday the 28th and carve out just three hours of your life. Let me tell you, you're going to walk away from that morning a changed person, more in love with Jesus Christ. You will never be so eager to work, come together again to worship as you will be after that, that experience. Tom Croyder is an amazing man. He's, he's written over 15 books on the subject of worship. And uh, I've quoted uh, an excerpt that is actually from John Newton that's included in one of his books called Worship is What, which our leadership team is studying together. If you take your bulletin, I've included it on the back, the quote from his book by John Newton on the back of your bulletin. And it fits so powerfully what what I want to say today. True worship. John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, wrote this little poem. Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought, but when I see thee as thou art, not as I think you are, not as I want you to be, but as you really are, when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought.
And that's what Tom Kreuter is going to help us to do. And it's times like that that are so valuable to take concentrated time away from the distractions and clutter of this world. And let me tell you, Satan, Lucifer, the evil one, who is very alive and well, unfortunately, is going to do everything he can to discourage you from being here that day. And I can guarantee you the sun is going to be shining. It's going to be 80 degrees. And it's going to be a stunning... And the grass is going to be growing. And, and he's going to do everything he can to beckon you away from this place that day. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. March 28th, 9 a.m. to noon. We, we're giving it away. We're going to lose money on this, but I don't care. I want you here. We're giving it away, so Saturday the 28th. Did I say Saturday the 28th? Might be here. (laughs) Seeing God's glory and understanding and reflecting on God's glory and what that is and what it means. You can't do that and not have it dramatically impact how you approach worship and how we live our lives. As I've stated, the Bible talks a lot about God's glory in displayed for everyone, the whole world. It's no secret for the whole world to see in all of creation. Last summer, I, I, we, we walked out of here after the, a big storm had gone through, and I saw for the first time in my life, and I know a lot of you saw it because I got phone calls from you. You were so excited about this. A couple of you called me and said, Dan, go outside and look at the rainbow. For the first time, I've seen many rainbows, but for the first time in my life, I saw a rainbow it, it came down. It, it, I'm pretty sure it started at the Methodist Church, and it went up all the way over, complete beautiful rainbow, and then came all the way back down to the ground on the other side. It was the most stunning. And then it started a double one. I have never seen anything as stunning and beautiful. And I just said, "Praise God!" And I remember Diane Hirsch coming up to me and saying. Wasn't that a beautiful display of God's glory? She probably doesn't even remember saying that to me, but I remember it. And it was just so powerful and so awesome. But God revealed His glory in Scripture. Glory concentrate. In a very direct, um, hit me over the head with a hammer kind of way. In the Shekinah glory in the temple. In the book of Exodus, chapter 40. Verses 34 to 35, Moses describes the experience. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the, the, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You know, our society has this caricature of God as being this feeble old man with this beard that goes all the way down to the floor. You know the picture? And he's, he's lovable, but he's a little absent-minded. He's well-meaning, but quite frankly, he's irrelevant. Now, that's, that, that is a cartoon the devil himself drew because that is anything. That is the antithesis of who God is. Second Chronicles 5, 13, 14 talks about how talks about when the, when, when the glory of God entered in the, uh, the temple, the new temple at the dedication. Then the temp- in, in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 13 and 14, then the temple of the Lord 
was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. It's anything but a picture of an old man with a long beard, feeble and absent-minded. The glory of God is a powerful, powerful and awesome thing. It is the same power that created and sustains all that exists. The very fact that you are here today and your heart is beating without you even thinking about it is because of the glory of God and for His glory. Scriptures go on to describe the glory of God as a consuming fire, awesome in power. When the Israelites were camped in the plains of Moab in what is today modern-day Jordan, in the east side of the Dead Sea, God gave them these instructions just before they were ready to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Be, not, or be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When God gave Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 24:17 we read, "To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain." When Korah and his clan and his family and two other families and their, their clans tried to rebel against Moses and God in the wilderness and take the, the lead, power of leadership and the reins of leadership for themselves. It came to a, a head, a crisis point, and a challenge. And the people of God had to choose between Moses and Korah and his rebellion. And God commanded at the appointed time that... The whole, the whole tribe of Israel stepped back from Korah and the other two families and move away from their tents and kind of leave them there. Now, let me tell you, if you're ever in a potluck situation here at church and all of a sudden everybody starts stepping away from you, you might want to be a little bit nervous about that. Because what happened next... Uh, God, in, in judgment of Korah and, and those two clans, the Scriptures say in Numbers chapter 16, opened the ground and it literally swallowed them up and closed in upon them and they were no more. Along with those three clans were 250 men who were burning incense in their behalf before God. And Numbers 16, verse 35, describes what happened to them. And fire came from, out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. You know, so often we, we sing songs about God and, and inviting to put His loving arms around us and, and hold us as if He was a, our lover. And God does put His loving arms around us. 
But unfortunately, that off too often paints a picture of God as being weak, feminine, and just wimpy. And there's a place for that. But the place for that is in the context of understanding who God is and His awesome power and His glory. And He is not to be messed with. He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be taken for granted. He is awesome and He is powerful and He is glorious. And when you understand that awesome power and glory and who He is and what He is capable of and what He does, and then you understand that He puts His loving arms around you, it totally changes how you view that and how you appreciate His intimacy and His love for us in that way. It's not because He's meek and weak. It's because He's powerful and strong and could destroy us just like that and yet loves us. That changes everything for me. Scriptures go on to talk about Elijah's challenge to the Baals and the false worship The whole kingdom of Israel had fallen into idolatry and judgment as a result of it. It's recorded for us in 1 Kings 18. This is a wonderful story of of Elijah challenging the the priests of Baal. All day long, all of Israel is watching. and, And the priests of Baal are wailing and gnashing their teeth and calling out to their gods to 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 uh, rain down fire and burn up their sacrifice and to show their power and nothing happens. And finally, mid-afternoon, Elijah's yawning. Well, maybe your God is taking a nap. Maybe if you just shout a little bit louder, you'll wake him up so that he could do something for you. I I love it. It's great. And so they try even harder and finally in exhaustion towards the end of the day they collapse in defeat and now it's Elijah's turn and Elijah digs it has the stones of Israel the 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel rebuilt into an altar and and he takes the bull and he puts it on the altar cuts it up in pieces and he digs a trench around the altar and he takes four large jars fill has them fill them with water and pours the four large jars of water over the this rebuilt altar that had fallen into disrepair and ruin and he says do it again and he puts four more large jars of water over the altar and he says do it again four more large jars or twelve jars of, of large jars of water representing the tribes of Israel poured over this altar so much so that the water is drenched everything and has filled up the trench all around it and then Elijah calls out to the Lord his God And we read these words in 1 Corinthians 18. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Because they didn't want that to happen to them. Hebrews 12:29 reminds us that the God of the Old Testament 
is also the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is what? Read it with me. A consuming fire. The Scriptures go on to say that apart from Jesus Christ, no one can see God's glory and live. Exodus 33:18, verse 20. Then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. Oh, foolish man. Foolish man. And the Lord said, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Is that the picture of a feeble old man? I don't think so. In John chapter 1, 14, we read, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have what? Seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that God, God's glory was made known and, and that God becomes once again approachable. And as we sang this morning, the wall that separated us, the veil of sin that separated us from Almighty, Holy, just God has been torn apart and Jesus Christ through His cross and His resurrection has made a way for us to boldly approach the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 14-16 Therefore, since we have a great high priest, namely Jesus Christ, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. And after all I've said to this point, I've been focusing on the awesome power and and the fear and the sense of awe and reverence, godly fear that that should instill within us. And yet when we understand that, we really begin to appreciate God's invitation through Jesus Christ to boldly approach Him with confidence. Not because of our merit, but because of Jesus has done in our behalf. The next main point that I want to share with you this morning is that God will share His glory with no one. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Lucifer wanted God's glory for himself. In Isaiah 14, 12, we have an account of what I believe is, is a reference to Satan's fall and kind of gives us a peek back into what happened. And Satan, we believe, was, uh, he was, he was a created angel. He's a created being, a no, by no means equal with God. He's just a gnat in God's sight. Not even that. And, uh, but he, he got full of himself, apparently, and desired to have God's glory for himself. And, uh, and, uh, and so we read these words in Isaiah 14:12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, a reference to, to Lucifer. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. It's a blatant rebellion, kind of like Korah's rebellion earlier that we talked about. And Satan sought nothing less than the throne of God for himself. He literally tried to stage a heavenly coup d'etat, a rebellion to overthrow God. What folly! How foolish! And God cast him down from heaven. Scriptures say Jesus uh, would seem to have uh, been alluding to this very passage when in Luke chapter ten eighteen, almost in passing, he says, "I saw Satan like fall like lightning." From heaven. It's that same desire for God's glory by Lucifer that infected Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, like Lucifer, also wanted God's glory for themselves. For themselves. Genesis 3 5. For God, everything is perfect, everything is as it should be in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have perfect communion with God. They're walking with Him, communing with Him, fellowshipping with Him in the cool of the day, apparently, as was their custom. And, and they were living life to the fullest. They knew nothing of sin. They knew nothing of pain. They knew nothing of death. They were immortal from everything I, I believe and can tell from Scripture. They were living in a world that God intended for all of us to live in. And Scriptures say that uh, in Genesis chapter 3, after, after the first two chapters describe this wonderful creation, this wonderful garden, this wonderful existence, chapter 3 describes w- where things went wrong. And Satan comes to uh, Adam and Eve, I believe, only by God's permission and only for a season of time to tempt them. And, and he deceives Adam and Eve. And what is the, the deception and the lie that gets them, that entices them? in Genesis chapter 3 verse 5 for God knows that when you eat of it namely the tree your your eyes will be opened and you will be like God they wanted wanted God's glory for themselves they wanted nothing less than Lucifer himself wanted to usurp God's throne and to be in control we go on to see Paul's commentary on that and our condition in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to them. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles and and folks, we may not make, we may not be so. We, we, we're contemporary. We're modern. We're, we're educated. We're not. We're, we're, together. We have it together. We're not stupid. We don't make idols of reptiles and birds and mammals. <laughs> but we have our own idols. We have our jobs. We have the almighty dollar. We have our prestige. We have our pride. You can fill in the blank. Those are idols every bit as much because the evil one is behind those just as much as he's behind any idol. Anything that displaces God in our lives is an idol. 
We're no different than Adam and Eve. And so, the whole fall of the, the human race is, is a sick attempt to, to claim for itself what belongs to God and God alone, His glory. Scriptures go on in, in my third point this morning to demonstrate m- many encounters with God's glory. And as I, as I rifle through these quickly, there's a common thread I want you to, to notice. In Daniel chapter 8:17, Daniel is confronted by God, and it's an overwhelming experience, and he records these words. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Is that a picture of a feeble old man with a long beard, meek and mild? Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. When Daniel was confronted by the glory of God and and his presence, it was so overwhelming he couldn't even stand. It was so powerful and overwhelming that God had to give him strength to even stand in his presence. Ezekiel. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness, say it with me, of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Just like Daniel. He was so overwhelmed, he couldn't even stand in God's presence. It crushed him to the ground. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced such an overwhelming presence of God that you couldn't even stand on your own feet? The shepherds at the birth of Christ. A passage we read over, gloss over so many times. Let me challenge you to look at this in a whole new way. Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And what? And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were what? Terrified. Is this the picture of a feeble old man? Kind-hearted and absent-minded? I don't think so. The resurrection tomb, the experience of the guards, recorded for us in Matthew 28. 
And after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And that's where they stayed. And the Apostle John, in his revelation, talks about his encounter with God and the glory of God. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be what? Afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am, past tense, present reality, ongoing reality, alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So what is the conclusion of all of this? Understanding God's glory causes us to approach God with reverence and awe. Understanding the glory of God and taking time to reflect on what it really means crushes our flippancy. God is not our beer-drinking buddy with a slap on the back. He's God. And Jesus Christ doesn't change that. He reinforces it. God is God. He must be who He is. Psalm 5, verse 7, But I, by Your great mercy, will come into Your house in reverence will I bow down. Understanding God's glory gives us a new appreciation for God's desire to be our compassionate friend. I talked about this a little bit earlier and I believe it with all my heart. One of my favorite verse passages of Scripture is found in Isaiah 57, verse 15. And I'd like to invite you to turn to that one with me. It's going to be up on the screen also if you don't have it. But let me invite you to turn to that with me in your Bibles. And if you have a pen or a marker, I'd encourage you to highlight this one. Because it's so poignant and powerful. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. And if you're, if you're having trouble finding that, just jot down the reference and, and you can look it up later. But Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the High and Lofty One says, He who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite, and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then lastly, in conclusion, understanding God's glory moves us from Sunday worship to a lifestyle of worship. When you begin to understand what God's glory really is and what it really means, you realize the folly of compartmentalizing worship on Sunday. 
You realize the silliness of leaving God here. God wants to inform every aspect of our lives. He wants to inform your business decisions, even if it costs you something. He wants to inform the way you interact with your spouse. He wants you to inform the way you act to that frustrating driver in front of you. He wants to inform the way you live when no one's looking. It's not just about what we do here on Sunday morning, as important as this is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. In Him we were also chosen in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And then Romans 12, 1, which Pastor Rick is going to be preaching on in a few short weeks. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then 1 Corinthians 10.13 really cuts to the chase. If there's any doubt left, or 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. Say it with me. For the glory of God. The epilogue to this morning, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this time. The epilogue to the story is, is what I would call a, and describe as the analogy of the atom. I think it, it, the, the, the atom paints a, a wonderful picture that I can use to sort of get my mind around this concept of the glory of God. The atom is, when harnessed, its great power produces energy, electricity, that is funneled into our homes, that we use without even thinking about. Every time we turn on a switch, every time we adjust the thermostat to give us warmth and light, comfort and pleasure, even in the midst of 30 to below wind chills. It represents all that is good. And the glory of God for those who love Him and have a relationship with Jesus Christ in Him. Experience God's glory that way. It represents all that is good in our lives. It gives us meaning and depth and purpose and strength and confidence and hope. On the other hand, the atom also has great power. When unleashed over Hiroshima, its fire and, and destruction flattened the city and killed hundreds of thousands instantaneously. It was a moment of terror. And God's glory unleashed can be like that too. I believe it's the difference between heaven and hell. And if we knew the beauty of heaven, we would do anything in our power to attain it. And my friends, 
if we knew the horrors of hell, God's glory unleashed as I believe it is, we would do everything in our power to avoid it. And the choice is ours. How will you choose? This morning I want to leave you with uh, and bless you with these words from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Amen.